0: Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity.
1: Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Sherry University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We're doing something a little different in this episode of Clear and Vivid. A couple of days ago, the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters announced the winners of the 2020 Kavli Prizes, which is an award of a million dollars in each of three research areas. The very big, astrophysics, understanding the universe. The very small, nanoscience, down in the world of atoms and molecules. And the very complex, neuroscience, the study of the brain and nervous system. We managed to catch up with two of this year's honorees, as well as one of the judges who were given the challenging task of nominating who should be awarded the Kavli Prize. David Julius of the University of California, San Francisco, found molecules that allow us to feel heat as well as cold, while Ardam Pataputian, working at Scripps Research, discovered the gene that allows ourselves to sense pressure. David Julius started out by trying to understand why chili peppers are hot. As a lifelong addict to the tang of hot peppers, I was eager to learn more. This is great that we can speak today because we almost met once.
2: We did, about 20 years ago or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, And the reason was I was so interested in research you were doing but I wasn't there when you were filmed talking about it, but the research right. was in something that's so important to my life, <laughs> which is hot peppers.
2: Yeah, I hear you're a chili pepper aficionado.
0: I think I've eaten hot chili pepper flakes every day of my life <laughs> since oh my I was God. 12.
2: Oh, there you go. Better living through chemistry, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How about you? Do you do you actually like hot peppers?
2: I do. I uh, probably. Uh, I don't think I. Uh, I'm at your level, but um, I do enjoy some spicy stuff.
0: And what what got you? I mean, your your research turned out to be have an extraordinary effect in the future on our lives, but it started out quite different, didn't it? You were interested in natural things like hot peppers and
2: yeah. I've always had this bent towards using natural products to understand physiology, it's something I've been interested in since I got into the area of neuroscience. Um, so that's part of it. But the other thing is that, uh, you know, it'd been known for years before we started in this research, mostly from uh, scientists in Hungary, where paprika is a big part of their industry, that um, capsaicin and chili peppers activates neurons that are specifically involved in pain sensation. And so, you know, putting those two things together, a love of using natural products to understand neurobiology and the fact that this would probably tell us something important about the pain pathway and how we sense pain is really what sort of launched our research in this direction. How
0: did you find out that there was a connection between sensing pain and the sensation you get when you eat a hot pepper?
2: Well, I think we all sort of know that from firsthand experience.
0: (laughs) If it's hot enough, that's true.
2: Yeah, people think that, uh, some people think when you eat a chili pepper, because that's how we experience it most of the time, that that's a taste response. But all you have to do is forget to wash your hands after you've chopped a chili pepper and stick your Uh. finger in your eye, and you know that that's not taste, that's pain.
0: So a key moment seems to be when you discovered a receptor in the cell.
2: That was a eureka moment.
0: Were you looking for that receptor? Did you we know were. you were looking for that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we were specifically looking for that receptor. So it had been hypothesized for, you know, a few years before us that there was a receptor for the chili pepper receptor, you know, a receptor for capsaicin, the pungent Asian chili peppers.
0: So that, that's a receptor is something that sits on the cell and some molecule from the chili pepper comes and locks into that thing on the cell, the receptor? Is that the idea? Exactly.
2: Yeah. So there was a site on the nerve fiber that's involved in sensing pain. And when the chili pepper, the pungent agents from chili pepper interact with it, it would it, it does what many things in the nervous system do, initiate an electrical signal that then gets sent to our brain. And we sense that as something noxious. Uh, so we were looking for that particular receptor or site that capsaicin or the chili pepper agent Docks to and initiates this cascade of events. So we ended up using some, you know, gene cloning trickery to identify the gene for that receptor.
0: So, what 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 did that enable you to do once you had the gene to the receptor?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, well, first of all, we could understand how it works. You know, what kind of a molecule uh, it is. In other words, how it activates nerve fibers we could importantly then use those genes to identify what types of nerve fibers express this particular chili pepper receptor. Uh, And that would allow us, that allowed us and many other people in the field to begin to understand the circuitry that's involved in sensing pain. Now, the other really important question is, why do we have this receptor in our body? It's not just so we can appreciate the culinary wonders of the chili pepper, That's that's an accident of evolution. Right, the chili peppers learn to usurp this site in our body that causes pain to protect itself. So a squirrel or a deer chewing on the fruit is averted because it's painful. Uh, crazy people like you and I and other humans, we like to do things that hurt us, so we've been drawn to the pepper plant, maybe to the pepper plant's demise, although we've cultured it. But you know, usually it's it, presumably it's there to that system to protect the chili pepper from predation. So why do we have it in our bodies? And and I think the important finding from uh, from our lab was that aside from being activated by chili peppers, it's also activated by heat. So uh, this, this is a receptor. So but uh,
0: that sounds like the same thing. It, what, it, it, we it, it talk is. about hot peppers.
2: Yeah, we describe them as, you know, burning pain, hot chili peppers. And that's because psychophysically, how our brain interprets those signals is a little bit different, but uh, somewhat similar as well. So when we touch something hot, or drink something hot, we're activating the same set of nerve fibers through this receptor that uh, enables us to sense, you know, that sensing heat that also senses the chili pepper. So the chili pepper is what we would call a psychophysical mimic of a hot experience. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, we flipped this coin over on its other side, if you want to say that, and asked, how do we experience things that are cold? And to do that, we used another natural product, of course, from mint leaves, menthol, And and menthol does sort of the same thing in an opposite way. It activates a receptor on nerve cells, a different population of nerve cells uh, that, uh, that are also activated by cold. And the menthol receptor also turns out to be a cold receptor. So that's why when you eat a mint or drink a mint julep, you think that you're experiencing something cold on a hot day because it may be cold because it has ice in it, but it's extra cold because it has menthol which is doing the same thing as cold. It's activating the same molecules and it's activating the same cells. So our brain confuses those things and uh, and thinks we're experiencing something cold when we eat a mint.
0: So do they interact in some way so you get a variation in between hot and cold? How do you yeah. get different temperatures?
2: That's a great question. So the, those pathways do interact. And in fact, there's recent evidence to suggest that our ability to detect warmth is a balance between detecting hot through the cells that express the chili pepper receptor and cold through the cells that express the menthol receptor.
0: So when somebody says, is it, is it just me or is it hot in here? <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs> yeah, they're so
0: having that's, a per- personal response to, to their the, the balance between their two hot and cold receptors. Yeah,
2: correct. They're not only involved in sensing temperature objects when you touch them, but they also tell you about what the status of your environment is so your body can then regulate its core body temperature to retain heat when it's cold or to lose heat when it's hot. And that's why people like to eat hot chili peppers in hot climates, because when you eat a hot chili pepper, it fools your brain and your nervous system into thinking it's hot outside, and so you begin to shed heat through sweating and vasodilation, and that cools your body down. So
0: what do you think, is going to come from this
2: you know in the case of the molecules we've looked at the other thing we've discovered about them is not only are they activated by heat or cold or environmental things like that but they're also modulated by agents that our own body makes when there's tissue damage like inflammation and because of that we've learned that these molecules are involved in Um, pain hypersensitivity or persistent pain syndromes that are associated with inflammation. The easiest example might be to think about when you get a sunburn and that area becomes inflamed. And then if you get into a warm shower that's normally comfortable, it can feel excruciatingly painful or if someone touches you lightly on that area. And that's A phenomenon called inflammatory pain we know that when we sprain an ankle or when we have arthritic pain in joints so that has led a number of us in pharmaceutical firms to think about them as good targets for drugs particularly that would treat inflammatory pain syndromes like osteoarthritic knee pain um, even uh, inflammation of the airways where there are nerve fibers that contribute to things like cough asthma etc so uh, I think that's an exciting potential outcome, and drug development takes a long time. But these molecules that we've identified uh, are now targets for companies that are trying to develop drugs that can be used for different types of pain syndromes.
0: What about chronic pain? I've heard it described as the mm-hmm. other epidemic. It's so yes. so present well, in our society.
2: Well, we know that. You know, That's really been brought home by the whole recent focus on the opioid epidemic and um, you know chronic pain does affect a lot of people i mean many of us in our lifetime will experience debilitating lower back pain or migraine pain or you know all of these things that or visceral pain meaning things like irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease so the problem, for example, with opiate receptors is that they're present on many, many neurons in the nervous system. So when you take morphine or another opiate, you're not just affecting neurons that are involved in pain sensation, but you're affecting neurons that are involved in breathing, in gut motility, in emotional states, et cetera, because those receptors are present in many, many places. and And that's sort of the root of side effects because the drugs, you know morphine and other drugs, act not just on the pain pathway but on so many other aspects of human physiology. And the molecules that we work on they are expressed in other cells but they're expressed most prevalently in neurons that are involved in pain sensation. So this the, the strategy here was, you know, the hope that they would be more specific targets for drugs and that if you could target them specifically there would be fewer side effects on other types of tissues and cell types.
0: You said it was a Eureka moment when you got the <laughs> receptor. What yeah. what was that day? Was it one day in which it happened? You said we got it, what uh, was that
2: like? Yeah, sort of actually. Well, you know, there's always work leading up to it and there were many failures before that. Um, but there was one moment when, uh, and I, I think you uh, you you met this person at least uh, electronically when we did the initial segment of this, Michael Katerina, who's now a professor at Johns Hopkins, who was the fellow in my lab doing this research. And we had been, he had developed this screen to be able to identify this gene. And then one day he said, hey, come into the dark room where we had this microscope where we were using this device to try and find the gene. He said, I want to show you something. And he showed me this little movie of these cells responding to capsaicin from chili peppers. And at that moment, we knew that we had, uh, at, at least that we were on very firm footing to identifying the gene for this receptor.
0: Well, this is wonderful. Before we go, I want to congratulate you on becoming a Kavli Prize laureate. Thank you. And I'm wondering about that day in your life, too. How did you find out that
2: you were? Uh, I received a phone call from the president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences.
0: And did you know you might be considered?
2: Uh, Well, I guess it was a possibility because our work's been exciting. But, uh, you know, there's so many people who have done beautiful, beautiful science and that have been impactful, you know, in all fields, but uh, neuroscience as well. And so it's always a possibility, but you know, you're one of many and I uh, have many fantastic colleagues who deserve similar recognition. So uh, I'm a lucky guy, but uh, could have easily been somebody else and, uh, and will be in the future. And, um, you know, we're part of, I mean, the great thing about science is you're part of this amazing international community. Uh, I see it as an antidote to um, closed borders and all those kind of things that people think about these days. And, um, you know, being a scientist lets you live in the full world and have friends all over the world who share information and collaborate. And so I have a lot of colleagues who could equally well have uh, have gotten an award like this and, and will. And so, you know, I'm. it's a humbling thing and I'm very grateful for it. Um, It's wonderful for my lab and for my institution. You know, everybody's very proud of that. And, you know, it's really the people in my lab who've done this work. I've been privileged to have some unbelievably talented people in my group uh, who now many have gone off to start their own labs and have their own scientific persona. And, you know, that's the other big joy in this, aside from making discoveries, is, um, you know, being a mentor and having a legacy of people who you've worked with, and that's just a great thing.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for being with me in this.
2: This Thank you.
0: talk about your fascinating work.
2: Thank you, Alan. It was great to meet you. Maybe one day in person after this virus passes. I feel over.
0: like we've had a meeting.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thank me too. you.
0: The 2020 Kavli Prize for Astrophysics was awarded to Andrew Fabian, the director of the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. Andy is a pioneer in using X-ray astronomy to study some of the most violent happenings in the universe, something he's been doing since he was a Ph.D. student and launched a rocket above the atmosphere to get a 15-minute glimpse of those violent and mysterious events. The Kavli Prize citation singles out his work on perhaps the most mysterious objects of all, black holes. And after talking with Kip Thorne a few days ago about colliding black holes, I really wanted to know more about them, what they're doing there lurking at the center of our galaxy and apparently most others. This is great to be able to talk with you because you're the go-to guy for black holes as far as I'm concerned. We've all heard the term black holes. We, I, we have a glimmer of what it is. I'd like to, I'd like to know more from you about what they are, how they form, what what relationship we have to them. For instance, is it true that a black hole begins with the collapse of a star?
3: Yes, Alan. It's the core of a massive star collapses inwards when it runs out of nuclear fuel. And uh, in a certain mass range, when they collapse, they collapse on down into a black hole. So. Basically, the inner part of the star collapses inwards and in a sense, passes out of our universe. Um, the mass is still there, but we cannot see into it.
0: My impression is that it's so massive, it's this it, it exerts a gravitational pull on things nearby, and they get drawn toward it, and then they start circling around it as they're drawn more and more into it,
3: right? It's going to be incredibly fierce activity down there as the material swirls around the black hole, you know, funnelling down into the black hole itself. It gets extremely hot, gets up to temperatures of a million degrees, for example, and it also is intensely bright and luminous. Enormous amounts of radiation come out from this region very close to the black hole, it's, and it's gravitational energy that's being released in terms of very large amounts of radiation. Some of the most luminous and some of the brightest objects in the universe are right next to the darkest objects, which are the black holes. <laughs> Is there a black hole at the, at the centre of every galaxy? It seems so. There's one at the centre of our galaxy... Uh, which is 4 million solar masses. That means 4 million times the mass of the Sun. Um, You look at other galaxies around us, uh, they appear to have black holes at the centre. There are one or two where we struggle to see evidence for a black hole. Black holes are very difficult to see because they're black and holes. And so you have to look as to whether stars near them are moving very quickly or whether there is gas around which is getting heated to very high temperatures and there's intense amounts of radiation. But all the work we've done suggests that almost every massive galaxy has got a black hole at the centre.
0: The black hole at the centre of our galaxy is 4 million times the mass of our sun. Correct.
3: But the size is different. The, the size of the black hole is not that different from the size of our sun. But its mass is 4 million times the mass of the Sun. So in some way, does the
0: galaxy find itself controlled by the black hole at the center of it?
3: That's something we've grown to realize in the last 20 years, is the enormous amounts of energy generated by the black hole at the center of a galaxy can actually influence the galaxy itself. The light from the luminous black hole region goes out and pushes dust in gas clouds and pushing on the dust it can push that out of the galaxy and so the galaxy ends up without any gas in it so it can't form any more stars. of course this means gas going into the black hole as well diminishes and so you end up if this is all that happens is just with a galaxy which is what we call red and dead It's red because all the stars in it are old and dead because there's no activity going on.
0: So it sounds like a galaxy is in danger of getting killed by its own black hole.
3: Are we in danger of that in our galaxy? (laughs) You're right that that's that's what happens uh, at times in a galaxy. That's what we think is going on. In terms of our own black hole... It's extremely low in radiation. And this is, again, another puzzle. There's lots of gas near the middle of our galaxy, but there's not much of it falling into uh, our own black hole.
0: So there's something so uh, intimately connected in terms of the black hole and the galaxy around it. Do black holes cause the beginning of a galaxy, or do they somehow
3: form after a galaxy has begun? That's a very important question I would say we don't know the answer to. Um, We think that black holes grew from stars with masses of, say, a hundred times the mass of the sun, which collapsed in the past. Um, That's how we think it happens. Another possibility is you form the gas collapse and the galaxy forms at the same time as a fairly big black hole
0: it's always nice to bring this image home somehow the black (laughs) hole is a fascinating thing but it's way out there it it affects us on a time span that we'll never experience but you (laughs) said once something about the black hole is so powerful that if you could get a very very small one and put it in your gas tank (laughs)
3: You'd get really good mileage. Indeed. If you put a a sort of gallon of petrol as your fuel going in, uh, forget about the chemical energy in the petrol, you would actually get enough energy to make your car go um, a billion miles. And uh, I don't think you're going to do that in your lifetime.
0: (laughs) No, no. Well, first of all, wouldn't the person in the back seat get sucked into the gas tank along with...
3: (laughs) Well, it, it, any sort of black hole we could envisage making, it will have very strong tidal forces around it. And <laughs> I, I I don't think we know of any way of making black holes like that. So I think, unfortunately, laboratory black holes uh, are not going to be around for a long time. How did you get into this
0: whole field? What what urged you to study black holes the way you do?
3: Ah. To start with, I... um. I was very keen on astronomy when I was a child, Um, but uh, when I had got my first degree, which is in physics, I decided I wanted to do space physics, something to do with space, and uh, particularly space astronomy. So I went and joined a group that was doing X-ray astronomy, and uh, I ended up uh, making apparatus that went on a couple of rockets, uh, so-called sounding rockets. Uh, They go up about 100 kilometres and vertically and come back down. But you get yourself something like 15 minutes at the top where your detector can be exposed to deep space. And we can do X-ray astronomy like that. And I was looking at a general X-ray glow that comes from the sky. And we now know that general X-ray glow from the sky comes from the all creating black holes in the universe.
0: You know what interests me about this is you're learning about The universe, the birth and death of galaxies, the nature of black holes, none of that at the moment seems to affect any of us in our personal lives, except the pleasure of understanding, of finding things out about nature that are basic. Are you driven by the pleasure of that without much hope of coming up with a really good coffee maker as a result?
3: (laughs) I I really like uh, curiosity-driven research. That's essentially what astronomy is. We're driven by curiosity, and uh, there's so much out there to discover. And it would be really great if I could find a practical application for what I'm doing. But, uh, you know, that's not the reason I do it. It's not the driving factor for it.
0: And yet... Almost all basic research, it seems to me, or maybe uh, maybe that's an exaggeration, but an awful lot of basic research, sometimes taking 50 or 100 years, produces a surprising new practical application. But if that research wasn't fueled by the pleasure of just understanding nature, we wouldn't get to the practical application.
3: You've said it. Yeah, that is exactly right. Uh, By actually going out and just following your curiosity and and doing what you can, uh, you stumble over things. And I believe strongly in serendipity in science. um, As Louis Pasteur called it, uh, serendipity is uh, chance favours the prepared mind. If you're prepared for something coming, then, you know, you might recognise it. And uh, that's a lot of what we, we're we doing. We're really trying to push physics to the limits. What we're doing in looking at black holes is pushing physics to the limits. So far, it looks like our, the physics we have developed over the last few hundred years um, works. Uh, and it's truly amazing. But it's also possible we'll find that it doesn't work. And uh, there are still many things out there, uh, for example, dark matter, that we just don't understand. And trying to understand these things uh, is continually pushing us into new ways of doing things.
0: Well, I sure have enjoyed speaking with you, and I look forward to those new discoveries you and others will come up with out of your sheer curiosity.
3: <laughs> Thank you,
0: Alan. Congratulations on being awarded the Codley prize. it's It's very exciting. do you Do you remember where you were when you when you got the news?
3: Yes, I was in this house. I was not in lockdown. So that was a nice call to get. (laughs) It was very wonderful and very exciting. Yeah.
0: The 2020 Codley Prize for Nanotechnology went to four researchers for their work in making it possible for today's high-power electron microscopes to peer down into the world of atoms. The new laureates are Harold Rose, Maximilian Hayter, Newt Urban, and Andre Kravonik. Awarding four scientists in one category was a first for the Kavli Prize, and it was the result of a long and lively debate among the members of the Nanoscience Prize Committee. So we thought it would be fun to talk to a member of that committee to find out both why the work of the four prize winners was so important and how the committee made its decision Here's Susan Coppersmith talking to me from Sydney, Australia, where she's the head of the School of Physics at the University of New South Wales. This is great. Thank you for talking with me about this.
4: Oh, thank you for uh, talking to me about this, too. Yeah, it's really exciting.
0: You know, I'm one of those people who thinks I know a little something about nanotechnology. I think probably because I mainly understand what the word nano means. but <laughs> that's a, it's, It starts to end there. But how tiny is the scale?
4: A nanometer, which is um, it's about 10 times the size of an atom. Uh, human hair is sort of a, uh, probably 100 nanometers. And so it's like much smaller than the width of a human hair. It's the size of the atoms in materials, the way they're put together. And that's why it's so important.
0: So l- now let me ask you, why can't we just take a picture with light of an atom.
4: Oh, because the, the the what happens is that the light is waves. And actually all these things were using the waves and the wavelength of light is about the, uh, is is half a micron, which is, you know, 500 nanometers. And so the light just is too big. It's sort of like I'm trying to think what's a good analogy. It, it's sort of like... It, okay,
0: uh, I, got an, I got an analogy for you. Okay. It's like trying to press an elevator button with a finger as big as a Volkswagen.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: It's bigger than the thing it's trying to take a picture of.
4: Yes, that's exactly right. And so then the idea is, well, we need something where the wavelength is smaller. So electrons have the right wavelength and they can be controlled easily uh, with electric fields. And so that was the principle behind the invention of the electron microscope.
0: So we were able to do that, I think I read, in 1931 using electron beams. What was wrong with that? Why couldn't we? Why was something done so many years later that wins a prize now?
4: Oh, it's because the lenses for electrons were prone to what's called aberration, which is just another way to say that they focus in different places, at different, you know, different parts of the lens focus at different places. So when you try to take an image, you can't get the whole thing in focus at once. So I think at the beginning, people didn't realize how hard of a problem it was because they figured, oh, okay, well, we'll just keep correcting the aberrations. But, but it turned out that, you know, 50 years went by, more, and uh, people hadn't figured out how to correct the aberrations in electron microscopes.
0: So I, I think I get how you focus a light beam. You use a piece of curved glass, right? Yeah. How do you focus a beam of electrons? You can, the glass doesn't help, right?
4: You do it with electric fields and magnetic fields. And then you have to get them in precisely the right configuration. And it turned out that just the jitter was a big problem. Like you get it all lined up, but then through thermal jitter or somebody sneezes or whatever was a huge problem.
0: So now four people have solved, it sounds like four people have solved different aspects of this problem. Were they working together or did they work, uh, built their work on top of one another at various times?
4: Well, they were, uh, um, there are three who are in one group and then there's one in another group. And they were competing groups. And that actually was one of the really interesting things about, um, the prize committee that I was on was trying to figure out what the various people did and the competition between the groups and, and you know, what the important um, contributions were. The, there are three Germans. Uh, one is Harold Rose, and he, um, he was a theorist, and he solved the problem of how do you make this combination of fields that corrects all the different things that could go wrong, all the different aberrations? And that was a longstanding problem from the 1940s of, you know, what's the right combination of fields and can you generate it in a, you know, in a way that can be achieved. And he theoretically did that. Okay, And uh, Maximilian Heider, who's the second laureate, was the experimentalist who sort of started on this track of building Rose's vision. And then Newt Urban uh, joined that effort. And was is instrumental in being able to actually build the um, the microscope, and so together that group made um, uh, you know uh, you know again a huge contribution and made the first uh, electron uh, transmission electron microscope with this aberration correction that was better than what you started with. Andre Krivanek was a separate effort altogether. He he was uh, in the U.S. for a while, um, but then. And what he did, he he tended to work in a different mode. So, so what the German group was doing is they were making images. So, you know, just like oh, here's my camera and there's a lens and I see an image. But he was doing a um, a different uh, a different kind of microscope, which was called a scanning transmission electron microscope, where basically you send the beam through and you're you're trying to you know analyze what's coming through the beam, and then you you. Um, Go point by point, and you can see what's different about all the different regions of your sample. Okay, but again, there are huge problems, and um, and he solved a lot of these problems in this in this uh, in the scanning mode. And uh, his and so he uh, went to Cambridge and with collaborators um, got a scanning transmission electron microscope uh, to work, and again achieve better resolution than you would do without the correction. Both of these groups started companies, and and again, you know, were commercially successful in these instruments because once people could see on that um, on that smaller length scale, it's it's enormously useful in um, in in you know in sort of characterizing materials and industrial processes.
0: So tell me more about that because it's it's fun to try to understand what the process is of being able to see at such a small scale, but then it's not. Immediately evident, what benefit you get from it to, to the layperson. What what do you get out of being able to see down at the atomic level like that? Is it the atomic level?
4: Yes, you can see right at, at this time the um, the resolution of um, of electron microscopes is is, is uh, half an angstrom, which is you know this you know atomic level for sure. I mean that's the size of an atom, and. Um, and i think the point is that the that that again you, you you know things are important on that scale and and when you prepare something you don't you don't know what you made unless you can see it i'm just thinking like you're baking right And unless you look in the oven you don't know if it's done <laughs> 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 so, so it's it's just so fundamental
0: so another you can can you tell things about how to better put molecules together if you can see them
4: oh absolutely you know because again then you know lots of times when you're doing things and the deep you know if, if you put it together and it's not quite perfect and then you know you you there's the thing you want like you want it to be strong or you want it to conduct electricity or you know they're all the properties and often like what's wrong with the material is super important in determining whether it's strong it'll break at a defect for instance and so, being able to image and see what it's doing on that atomic scale t- tells you, oh, it didn't work because of this problem that we can fix. So, so again, it's just like the baking. Oh, it's not done. I put in the I put in the toothpick, and it it still has, you know it, it, it didn't. It, <laughs> I you think know, you it, got it, the best. it really helps.
0: <laughs> you have the winning analogy that the microscope is like a toothpick. That's great.
4: Yeah, well, well, when you're baking, but 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 you know what I'm saying. It gives you a way to see how it's doing
0: were there problems looking for this solution were they lining up waiting to be able to see deep into the nanoscale
4: well i think you know that's the thing it's like so fundamental that people sort of did other things to get around it um but but again it's just when when people saw this they just said well we we want one of these i mean and, and that's the thing about it is that it's been you know really heavily adopted by you know so many um, laboratories trying to, you know, build new technologies to, you know, make new kinds of materials and to be able to understand how to get the properties you want atom by atom, you know, make them and have them actually do what you want. And I think it's so general that, you know, I, we, I mean, in our thing, we have like a list of, um, uh, of industries where it's used heavily, but but really it really is just like baking. you'll be like saying, well, okay, I made chocolate cake and it was great. The toothpick really helped <laughs> there, you know but then you'd say, well, I bet you it'll work for a pound cake too uh, you know you know what I'm saying yeah, It's just yeah, a really yeah. general tool and, and it's so enabling that, that 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 was one of the things that um, that, that really um, that spoke to us. but the other thing was also the the struggle of you know, it had been a problem that had gone unsolved for long enough that actually both groups had tremendous problems getting the work funded because they said, well, we've been working on this for so long and nothing has worked. So why should we fund you? Because it's not going to work for you either. And then to actually overcome and have it actually work and turn into something important. I really spoke to me as saying this is a really important thing and, and, and also inspiring to have people who really stuck with it and got it to work.
0: Do you have an example or two of what's been able to happen now, what's been possible or what's going to be possible because of this new work that's been done on this?
4: So so one of the examples that we focused on in the committee was uh, the imaging of, of what are called piezoelectric materials. And these are materials that... If you put on an electric field, they change their shape. And so they're they're important for one example of what they're used for, or, or what are called actuators. Like you want to, you know, have something and it gets bigger on demand and you apply a voltage, it gets bigger on demand. But these materials tend to form what are called domain. Like you put on the electric field and it doesn't do what you expect. Like it sort of forms complex structures. And if But if we can control that, then we would be able to, you know, do this, what's called transduction, you know, take... Take voltage and turn it into, you know, shape change, in a really controlled way, and so understanding atom by atom is very important to understanding these domains, and so that's been a huge, um, a huge use of the aberration corrected uh, microscope, and it's imp- those and actuators like your car is filled with them. Because again, this idea of like, you know, you have, you know, you have electricity and you make things happen, you make things move. So that's one example of a a small class of materials that where where it's had made a huge difference.
0: So what was it like picking the four people? How hard was it? Because they weren't the only ones who had done work in this field, right?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, and also it was harder than it sounds because it's actually a super interesting committee um, because there are. A lot, they've told me very carefully, you have to be confidential, you know, keep confidentiality, but um, uh, but basically, I can say that there were a lot. One thing that's really great about something like this is that you're reading about just all these wonderful things that people have done and the advances they've made. and that is the hard thing of like how do you focus it down and and so what happens is you just sort of... Pick some, you know, because you know something about their work or, you know, you, you look into it a little bit. And, um, and then the committee gets together and everybody's picked out a few things that they think are really great. And then, and then, and then we decide we're going to focus on a few. And then there's, we call people up and we ask what they think. Um, we read we read the papers that they've written, and then you investigate some that you don't get enthusiastic about. But then you get some, and you go, "Oh, this is this is such good work," and these are these people are you know just the, there's the creativity, and, and and somehow there's something about it that really speaks to you. But then everybody on the committee has their uh, their proposal of who should get it, right? And so then you fight it out, and that part is actually the most interesting part, where we have these incredible things. And somehow you come to consensus.
0: I can see that it would be difficult because one person could find it interesting in and of itself. Another person could find that, wait a minute, this is a tool that can lead to other things. And somebody else might say, but I know somebody Who's who's a, a great scientist and has never been rewarded and needs to be rewarded? I can see so many different criteria coming into play at the conference table.
4: Exactly, and that's what makes it it's super interesting for that reason. Um, and so that depends on the individual people and uh, and the Norwegian Academy of Sciences. Uh, you know, you know, brings people that you know, from all over the, from all over the world, and we come and we we hash it out. And I think it does depend on the composition of the committee and, and, and what people think is important. So that was done really with a lot of reading and uh, talking to people. And everybody on the committee was involved with that because it has to be unanimous. You know, we oh, all have really? to, in the end of the day, know that we we, you know, our best judgment is that this is the right thing to do.
0: Do you have a feeling about how this will change things? In nanoscience? Are you, I mean, it's sort of a, it's a speculative question I'm asking.
4: I think, again, as people try to do things and being able to image what's going on atom by atom just enables you to get a level of control that wouldn't be possible any other way. So, again, it's just like if, oh, all right, I'm sorry I'm doing all this cooking analogy, but... um, I have an instant pot. Uh, do you, I don't know? Do you, do you do you know what an instant pot is? Or
0: no, I, I have no okay. idea
4: what what's All name. right, <laughs> so so they're very popular. You could read about them in the New York Times, but but it's they're electric pressure cookers. All uh. right. And the thing about an instant pot oh, you, is- This is
0: what I, you can cook spaghetti in it by putting the spaghetti and the sauce in all at the same you time. You put it
4: all in and you put on the thing. Hey, but the point is you can't look at it while it's cooking. Ah. And it's like, you know, when you're cooking, if you have a pot, I mean, the instant pot is so much faster and I love my instant pot. I'm not, I have nothing against the instant pot. Okay, But yet there are the times when, you know, you open it up and it's a catastrophe in there. <laughs> and, and and that's you know, that's what lifting up the lid does for you. And and this is like lifting up the lid. And so it's just so enabling that everything is that, that you know depends on, you know, what the structure is on that scale is, is affected by the fact that we actually can see it. That's great. That you can look inside.
0: That's great. You you made it you made it live for me. I, I think I get it.
4: Okay, yeah, no, and and, and I love the instant pot. If you want, I'll send you recipes. <laughs> Someone's going to do an instant pot where you can look inside and it, you know, and we'll all go nuts. We'll be like, we'll so we'll be so excited.
0: That'll be the next Covley prize, a window on the instant pot. Well, I this was fun, Sue, thank you. I really enjoyed it. you're You're so good to talk to about this because you bring it down to a level I can get. Thank you
4: well, thank you so much. This was really fun. All right. have a great day.
0: You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the Kavli Foundation. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Jennifer Doudna, who with Emmanuel Charpentier and Virginia Schickshnees won the 2018 Kavli Prize in nanoscience for developing CRISPR. CRISPR is the molecular scissor that's revolutionizing medical research.
1: And I think that, you know, what we'll see in the next, say, five years is going to be, you know, some really exciting science that shows us how gene editing can, in fact, have a profound impact on diseases that up until now have had no therapies, you know, no real real treatments, much less uh, a cure.
0: Jennifer Doudna and the power of CRISPR. Next time on Clear and Vivid.